As I noted in our previous study, Revelation 22 verse 5 not only ends the narrative for the book of Revelation, but it really concludes the overarching storyline of the entire Bible. The original curse brought into the world through the sinful choices of Adam and Eve has finally been brought to an end. It's no more. Our eternal reality transitions to a new earth, a new heaven, a new Jerusalem, a holy city. Additionally, apart from the curse being gone, just a distant memory, that devastating separation that had existed because of sin, beginning with the fall, this separation between man and his creator, is at last again removed for all of eternity. Not only do we have this new Jerusalem and this new earth to enjoy, the curse being gone, but according to John's account, for the first time really since Eden, humanity, all humanity, everyone, will be able to see the veiled face of God. Beginning with verse 6, and continuing really to the end of the chapter, John will be given a few final exhortations that he then turns around and relays to us. Let's dive right into it. Beginning with verse 6, Revelation 22, Then he said to me, and, and I should give a little context, that the he, the identity of he, has been established back in the ninth verse of the previous chapter. The speaker here, he, is one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues. So this angel that John's already familiar with is the one doing the speaking. So he said to me, these words are faithful and true. That word faithful, it means that the things that John has been shown, the things that have he's seen, the things that he's written about are dependable. And they're true. Or you could translate, they're without fiction. This is going to happen. This is the truth. Now, now John appears here to cut in by adding, And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. As we work through the end of this chapter, there's a, there's a lot of different voices jumping in at a lot of different times. And here we find the angel speaking, John interjecting, but then something happens in our text. Now this is not the first time. Back in Revelation 16 verse 15, John is in the midst of recording the events being unleashed on the earth through the sixth bowl judgment. And in the middle of all these things that John's writing about, he's recording, Jesus interjects. He just kind of jumps into the text. He says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. Again, here it appears Jesus does this again. He jumps, he interjects into the text by saying, Behold, I am coming quickly. Now, in light of all of the things that John has seen and recorded, Concerning this new earth, and specifically this holy city, the new Jerusalem, Jesus, in light of all of those things, he jumps in because he wants you to think about something. He wants something to be on your mind in light of it all. Behold, he says. That word behold. It's you need to set your mind. You need to th of everything, this is what you should think about. Behold, consume your thoughts with the idea, I am coming quickly. That's what Jesus wants you to set your mind towards. In fact, this exhortation to think about Jesus' soon coming 
is of such importance, significance, that in addition to this verse, verse 7, you're going to find the identical exhortation repeated two other times in the same chapter. Now, I noted in our very first study that the idea behind this phrase, coming quickly, is not to say, in, in the Greek language, that Jesus was coming soon. It's not the idea, which again would be odd because it's been 2,000 years since, right? And yeah, it's true, a, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, a thousand years like a day. You know, he counts things in a different, a different con- context. But the, the idea quickly, it's not soon. That's not the idea. Instead, what's being articulated is this notion that when Jesus' is coming finally does happen, it will take place abruptly. It will roll out quickly. You see, the suddenness of Jesus' is coming, like this reality that Jesus could call you and I, his church, home to heaven at any moment. That suddenness, that reality, it should have an impact on you and I. In fact, what it should cause is his followers to live every day, every moment, in a state of, of perpetual readiness. That we should have an expectation. May I ask, you don't have to answer, keep it to yourself, but think about it. How often is it that you think about the reality, and it's a true reality, I don't mean to be harsh, but the reality that your day, today, could end with you standing on the other side of the great divide called death, alive, standing before King Jesus. Do you realize that could happen today? It's possible. Now, whether it be the rapture, and that would be the best way to go, or just simply your appointment to die once has come, the idea that your eternity could be ushered in today, if you really believe that, it should have a tangible impact on the way you live. Like, first and foremost, have you been reconciled with God through Jesus? That's a question you you should ask and answer. Are you confident of your salvation? Where is that confidence? Do you know where you'll go apart from death? Like if today was your last, would eternity begin with serious regrets? Things you didn't do? Would there be conflicts with people you care about that that you left unresolved? Harsh words? still ringing out into the ether? If today was your day, let me ask, would there be hidden sins only to be discovered by your loved ones after the fact? Would those that you care about the most, if you left today, would they know really how you cared for them? Again, the suddenness by which your eternity can begin should place today into an important context. Now, all the way back in the opening of the book, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus gave a very interesting promise, not just to John, but to the audience that would, that would be uh, consuming reading uh, this particular uh, revelation. He says, I'll read it for you. Jesus said, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and those who keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. 
One of the things that's really unique to the book of Revelation in particular is that it comes loaded in with a blessing. Like Jesus is, is, is abundantly clear regarding this book, unique. There's a blessing for three things. There's a blessing for those that read, the reader. There's a blessing to the hearer, those that listen, and the keeper. Now, now that we're approaching here the end of the book, I, I hope you understand, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings for any length of time, you have already received the blessing of reading, because we've been reading through it, and you've received the blessing of hearing. And yet, as noted in chapter 1, verse 3, and now repeated again in Jesus' exhortation recorded in verse 7, there is a final blessing. Yes, to the reader and to the hearer, but there is a blessing Jesus promises to give to those who, quote, keep the words of the prophecy of this book. That idea of keeping the words of the prophecy of this book is kind of an odd phrase. And in the Greek, you should note that the word keep, it doesn't necessarily mean to obey, but, but rather to attend to something carefully or to safeguard it. You're keeping it, keeping it safe. You're cherishing it. And considering that really most of the, the accounts recorded in this book pertaining to future events not necessarily relevant to the Christian. It would be very hard to set out figuring out, like, how am I going to obey this book? Like, how am I keeping these things? But that's not the idea. The idea is that you and I, in light of what the book says, we should hold this revelation of Jesus in high esteem. You know, it's, it's regrettable. But this is one of the reasons that I believe modern Christianity why their hesitancy towards teaching the book of Revelation is so short-sighted. Like, out of fear that the subject matter might come across strange. It does, let's be real. What happens is, by avoiding it, we indirectly rob a congregation or a group of people of a tangible blessing that Jesus promised to give himself. As I've noted in light of what's happening in our world, I really believe the book of Revelation is more relevant than ever before. Yes, it's true that this revelation addresses the coming future. And the subject matter, it can be trippy, sometimes scary, occasionally downright disconcerting. And yet, the book, it reveals the future for a reason. Not just that you know the future, but that in seeing how things play out, you might come to see Jesus in a new and radical way. That's why we cherish the book. That's why we keep the book. That's why we study the book. That's why there's a blessing. Why? Because in this book, we get a fresh, a new revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, I said this in my introduction, the, the very first study to the series, but I'm going to repeat it here at the end. Like the goal of a series through this book should not be to work out all your eschatology or theology about end times affairs. The blessing of reading, the blessing of hearing is that it's this book that provides you and I a greater knowledge of, a greater understanding of who Jesus is. Which is again why it should be cherished. Without this 66th and final book. Imagine first how the Bible would end. It would end kind of a dot, dot, dot. Like, well, what happens? What's going to take place? 
Is Jesus really going to come back? What's the resolve? Like without the book of Revelation, imagine the Bible. It'd be strange. It would be without the final chapter. But beyond that, without this book, the truth is that your knowledge and understanding of your Savior Jesus, like what you know of him without this book, would be woefully incomplete. That's why I always say that it's, in many ways, the fifth gospel. Now to this idea of John's revelation in this text being referred to as a book, you know, in Revelation 1, verse 11, Jesus actually commanded John. He said, at the very beginning, he said, what you see, John, write in a book. And send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Well, we've reached the end now of John's record. And this, the final product, like what, what's, what results, it's now described as a book. What's cool is seven times in this final chapter, it's called a book. A book to be uh, circulated about the seven churches of Asia, but throughout all of church history. Verse, verse 8. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. Now, pause for just a moment. Like John is going to kind of start a closing here. And he wants, he'll attest, he's testifying to the audience that, that the things he wrote, the things he recorded, that he was personally, he says, I saw and heard these things. I was an eyewitness to the things that I recorded. John says, and when I heard and saw, I fell down and worshipped before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now, it is possible that John is just recounting a, a, an occasion that happened earlier. Or it could be that this is happening all over again. It's hard to say. But he, he says, I heard, I saw, I fell down at the feet of the angel and I worshipped him. Again, first time, second time, not sure. But the angel, I love it. He says, John, don't do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. And he says, worship God. We should worship no created thing. We should worship the creator of all things. Verse 10, he said to me, again, the angel, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust or wicked, let him be unjust still, or let him continue in his wickedness. He who is filthy or, or morally defiled, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And the final few words given to the prophet Daniel by the Lord. He's instructed to do something very particular. He's told in Daniel 12 verse 4 to shut up the words of his prophecy to seal the book, explaining that that needed to happen until the time of the end. Like the reason that Daniel was supposed to seal up his prophetic visions to a later time was that at some point in the future, at a later date, it could be better understood. It would have the benefits of hindsight. In contrast to that, though, at the end of John's revelation, very much paralleling a lot of the things that Daniel wrote about, he's very specifically instructed not to seal up the prophecy of the book. So why the difference? Why was Daniel told to seal things up till a later time? But now John is being told, uh, don't seal it up. Well, the answer is in our text. Why? For the time is at hand. 
Don't seal it up. People need to read this, to hear this, to understand this. Again, while the book of Revelation does include many things that still remain in our future, the purpose of John's writing was to reveal the complete person of Jesus, to reveal Jesus to his church, which makes, again, the things John is writing very applicable, the times at hand. The church needs to know this other component of the person of Jesus. They need their understanding rounded out, completed, which is why it's not to be sealed. The blessing, reading and hearing and keeping. You see, the revelation of Jesus provided in this book has been relevant to believers down through the centuries for it has always given Christians comfort. No matter what's going on, you read through the book of Revelation, yeah, there's trippy stuff, but you can take a step back and there is this comfort that, you know what? God wins in the end. Like that provides a measure of comfort, doesn't it? And it also, as I'm studying the book, it gives me a measure of peace. That no matter what's going on in my life right now, I have peace, the knowledge that all wrongs will be righted one day. Like nobody's going to get away with anything. There will be a day of reckoning. And as I work through the book of Revelation, it gives me this anticipation that there are brighter days ahead. And and the promise of heaven, as well as the motivation to make every day count. Why? For the king of the kingdom is coming. Now, I will admit that verse 11, it's very complicated. You can read varying opinions all over the map. I'll read it again. The angel says to John, he says, He was unjust. Let him be unjust still. He was filthy. Let him be filthy still. He was righteous. Let him be righteous still. He was holy. Let him be holy still. Now, in the Greek, there doesn't seem to be built into this like an invitation to just say la vie or to continue doing what you're doing. That's not the idea, at least in the construct of the Greek language. But, but rather, it seems to be kind of this admission by the angel that you'll continue doing what you're doing. Now, where's the context? Well, we'll get to that. A better translation would be, he who is unjust and filthy will remain unjust and filthy. He who is righteous and holy will remain righteous and holy. Again, the context of this admission or the acknowledgement of this reality was within the context of Jesus' coming. Again, we find this three times in the final chapter. Behold, I am coming quickly. And it's in light of his coming that there's this admission of the angel that when his coming happens, certain things aren't going to change. David Guzik, who's one of my favorite Bible commentators, this is what he says of this verse. He says, the thought here is probably that since Jesus is coming will happen so suddenly that there won't be time in that moment to change. Like that time will have come. It will have gone. Like there will be no time with the coming of Jesus for there to be a last minute repentance. The idea is that the time is now to make a decision. Uh, David, he, he says this, he says, if what you've read in Revelation hasn't changed you, there isn't much hope. Verse 12, Jesus again interrupts. He, he interjects. Verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. 
There's no question that Jesus is relaying to the reader within the final chapter this measure of urgency. Like, he's coming. These things will happen. You should be ready. That's the idea. And why? Why should we be ready? Why should we be looking? Well, Jesus says that he will reward everyone according to his work. You know, if you're a Christian, I hope you know, uh, not stating the obvious, that you're alive on this earth for a reason. I know that might come across very elementary, but it's true. Like you and I were created by God. And then amazingly, we were saved by Jesus and redeemed. And beyond all of that, then we were filled with the Holy Spirit, created by God, redeemed for his purpose, filled with his power. Why? So that we might accomplish his will on this earth, practically. Through the activities of our, of our hands and the movements of our feet and the words of our mouths. You know, the song that we close the set with, it's the prayer of St. Francis. Frank, St. Francis of Assisi. And it's, a, it's, it's the prayer put to music. Let, let me read you the original. I love it. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love, for it's in the giving that we receive, and it's in the pardoning that we are pardoned, and it's in the dying that we are born to eternal life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul, he wrote that we, speaking of, of Christians, believers, we are his workmanship. In the Greek, poema, we're his poem, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's a purpose, an intention. Uh, Paul adds that these good works God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, created by God, redeemed by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit for a reason. To serve Him. To be about His work and His, his ministry on this earth. And, and as it pertains to that Christian service, Jesus here, He says, I will reward your work in eternity. Please understand, and the Bible couldn't be clear, that our faith in Christ alone is what saves us. But it's equally true that a genuine faith in Christ will bring about the real transformation of a person's life. Like to this point, Jesus' half-brother, James, same mom, different dads, James wrote, Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He said, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, the truth is that works, our Christian service, the things being manifested, produced out of our lives, are the most reliable indication as to the existence of a true saving faith 
in that person's life. Like, for example, and I'll say it this way. If you claim that you have had a life-changing, a life-altering encounter with the resurrected Jesus, but your life hasn't been altered in any way, did you really have such an encounter? Charles Spurgeon once said, a grace that does not change your life will not save your soul. And it's true. Verse 14, John again jumps into the text. He says, Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city, but outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Regarding your works, the works that are yielded through your faith, the natural manifestation of a, of, a, of a relationship with Jesus. John relays here how blessed or happy, happy is the person who does his commandments. Why? For we're given the right to the tree of life, so we're given everlasting life, and we're able to enter this new Jerusalem through the gates of the city. Now, obviously, the pertinent question is what is his commandment? We don't talk about that a lot, right? I mean, Jesus Jesus didn't have a lot of commandments, right? He said the law came through Moses, grace came through Jesus. Jesus was not one issuing a lot of commandments. But he did on occasion. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, we're given the answer to this question. Well, what is Jesus' commandment? Well, we read, and this is his commandment. So there's no mystery here that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Like, always know that the one work by which all other Christian works flow is a personal decision that you make to surrender your life to Jesus and accept His gift of salvation. That's the one work. His commandment, believe and be changed. Now, in many ways, this list that John gives us here in verse 15 is nothing more than just kind of a repetition of what he was told in Revelation 21, verse 8, about those not granted access to the new earth, and instead those cast into hell. John says that these will remain outside, where, again, as Jesus said in Matthew 8, verse 12, they are cast into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A lot of debate about John's use of the word dog. It uh, doesn't apply to Georgia Bulldog fans. Um, nor does it apply to, like, your dog. And like, well, now it, my dog will be outside of the New Jerusalem? I mean, I mean, maybe your dog's not potty trained and needs to be kept outside of the city or kenneled. No, it's, it's, it's really... Uh, in the, the first mentioning of the list, we have the word abominable. And then John kind of repeats the same list, but he just exchanges abominable with dog. And, and in the culture, again, first century culture, dogs were scavengers. It gives a different context, a different understanding. N don't, no worries. My dog will be in heaven. I don't know about yours. I can't say that with any certainty other than mine and Toby. Now, this revelation here, it closes 
with a particular exhortation given by Jesus to the churches. Like actual literal churches, seven of them, located in Asia Minor, that upon Paul's release from the island of Patmos, which is where he's receiving this, and it would happen soon after, uh, they would receive this, this, this book, they would read it in the midst, they would copy it, they would uh, uh, disseminate it, pass it along. So John, uh, Jesus is giving here a kind of an exhortation here to those that would read it. And that extends down through the centuries to us as well. Verse 16, I, Jesus, I, and pa- <laughs> I love that, really, that's very unique. I, Jesus, like this is the only place in the entire Bible where we have like a personal dictation. I, Jesus, like Jesus speaking in like the first person. Which should tell you, if this is the only place in the entire Bible, you have Jesus like, I, Jesus. You should pay attention. Like, it means it's important. He says, and again, to those that would have been receiving this, he says, he says I, Jesus, have sent my angel. And again, if you go back to the context of the end of chapter 1 into chapters 2 and 3, my angel here, it's literally messenger. It's not an angelic being. My angel, my messenger. So he's talking about John. My messenger, John, I've sent him to testify to you these things in the churches. So Jesus here, he's authenticating personally that what John has written, recorded, what he documents in this book are the things that he, Jesus, revealed to him. So he's making it clear. Guys, John didn't take peyote, didn't go on a trip. This, this, you know, he was not doing his own thing here. I revealed this to him. This was, not, this was not a trip. This was a revelation. And I'm the one that did it. I know it might sound crazy. It might come across bizarre. This is not a product of John's imagination. He only got this through revelation. I gave it to him. It's what Jesus is really hammering home. And then he says, I am the root and the offspring of David, which is a really interesting phrase. Jesus is, is again affirming to be the messianic uh, Christ. He's, he's the Messiah descending through David. But he's acknowledging here that, that, that Jesus instituted the Davidic line, I'm the root, that he would then be born into. He's the offspring. Like Jesus is saying, like, of this thing, I originated it, and I'm the fulfillment of it. He then says that he's the bright and morning star. It's likely that this is a reference to the North Star. Or, or what would be called the dawning star, the first star that welcomes in a brand new day. I love that about Jesus. I'm the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For those who find themselves deeply longing for something, something more than what this fallen world has to offer. For the person that has read through this book and and they are just keenly aware, like there is something missing. There's an, an internal need that this world fails to meet in any way. Something is lacking. Like for the man or woman who finds themselves just perishing from an unquenchable thirst that's never ever satisfied the book of revelation closes with this bold invitation 
whoever desires may come to drink freely of the water of life. The water of life. You know, this concept of Jesus offering humanity something that can satisfy a spiritual need. Again, kind of using an illustration of water, physical thirst, coming to drink. That idea, that, that connection about the, Jesus speaking of something spiritual using this illustration, it was really first introduced to us through an interesting exchange that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman recorded in John 4. I, I want to read you the exchange. gives us some context to what Jesus is offering here. We're told that a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Can you give me a drink? Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? There was all kinds of racial strife within that culture. But Jesus said, he answered her, he said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. But the woman said to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well's deep. She's missing the illustration. Where do you get that living water? So Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water, speaking of the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So the woman said, said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Again, we have this, this picture of drinking and water articulating, illustrating something much deeper that Jesus is offering. Jesus, again, hammering home, establishing the illustration, but, but for a little bit more clarity as to what the water that Jesus is offering is. This weird water that we drink of it and it produces a fountain in our lives so that we never thirst again because it's always and continually developing. Like, okay, well, what is that? Well, John 7, we're told that on the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Again, he's reiterating what he said to the Samaritan woman. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, John does something here that's very helpful. And again, he brings all this up at the end of Revelation, connecting back to the things that, that he had introduced in his gospel about Jesus. He said of the living water that Jesus gives, that we drink of, that becomes this fountain, a well, spring up a well. John says, but, but this Jesus spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So John, writing his gospel, gives some context. No one really knew what Jesus was talking about. It became much clearer later. Now, practically, when the book of Revelation closes here with this invitation, that whoever desires may come to drink freely of the water of life, what is being promised? What Jesus is offering is this internal transformation of you, of the individual. How? Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now this spiritual experience, really central to the gospel, it's referred to in a lot of other ways. It's called regeneration, to be to, regeneration, or, or 
It's called the new birth, or simply to be born again. It's where we get this phrase. In fact, in John 3, verse 5, Jesus told a religious leader named Nicodemus, he said, most assuredly, I say to you that unless one is born of water, physical birth, and the Spirit, this amazing thing that happens, that person cannot enter the kingdom of God. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Now before we move on, please do not miss the implications of this, these two words. In fact, you should circle it, highlight it. It's great, it's great. Whoever desires. Like it's a kind of a central component to what Jesus is offering here, isn't it? Like what this means is that the only prerequisite to having a life-changing encounter with Jesus, one in which he fills you with his spirit and makes you someone else, the only prerequisite to experiencing that is desire. The prerequisite is not being good enough or somehow proving to Jesus you're worth it. All you have to do is want it. Enough to ask that Jesus might fill you with his spirit. Again, the word freely, we noted this last Sunday, but it should be more accurately translated as undeservingly. You know, no one filled with the Holy Spirit deserves to be. Period. Like this is a gift that's given by Jesus. It's something we can only receive. Which which in the end is, is an amazing idea that I, I want to unpack very quickly. Because this, this notion that it's a gift given that we have to receive, like this is what really makes Christianity so much different from every other ethic, every other moral standard, every other world religion. You see, the religious norm of this world, it presents this dynamic. It's a dynamic whereby man comes with an offering they hope will be found good enough to be received by God. That's how every other moral structure is, is, is framed. Man coming with an offering, hoping that God receives the offering. And yet, Christianity turns that dynamic on its head. For the gospel presents a dynamic whereby it's God who comes to man, having made a good enough offering, hoping what? That man will receive it. It's the opposite. Now, in both, like if you're trying to unpack the, the idea, in both, the situation is fundamentally this. I'm giving, will you receive? Like, that's the framework. But the great contrast between Christianity and everything else is who's in the first person. I'm giving, will you receive? That's how all world religions present it. Me, I, I'm giving, will you receive? But within Christianity, you have to ask, who's the giver? Who's the receiver? Who's making the offering? Who's receiving the offering? Amazingly, the options are clear and the contrast evident. We either give an offering, hoping that God receives it, or God gives an offering, Hoping you receive it. It's the great difference. Some people have illustrated it where it's, it's man reaching up to God. As opposed to the gospel, it's God reaching down to man. 
It's Jesus saying, I'm giving it all. Will you receive it? For there's nothing you can give to ever make yourself good enough. To ever make yourself right. Verse 18. For I testify. And we're back to Jesus speaking. So Jesus is making a declaration. I testify. So you should take it seriously. He says, to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. So it has a universal application. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. That's not good. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in the book. Again, not a very good thing. I mean, there's some heavy implications here. Now, before we unpack it, like what Jesus is warning of in the passage, we do need to address a question. And we need to address whether or not this, this what Jesus is saying, is applicable to only the book of Revelation, or is it applicable to the Bible more broadly so this warning we get it there's a warning is it just to the book of revelation or is it to the bible now to answer that question i want you to notice two pertinent lines in our text notice that jesus first references look at it the words of the prophecy of this book which we can say clearly applies to the book of revelation but then look he then mentions so the words of the prophecy of this book and then he says the words of the book of this prophecy. Which means that the application here is not just for the book of Revelation, but for the larger book, Revelation finishes. Again, applying to the Bible. Now the overwhelming majority of Bible scholars and and the orthodox view that's universally accepted by most of the church fathers, beginning in the, the first generation following the apostolic age, is that the word of God, our Bible, God's holy word, includes a total of 66 books. You have 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. With the book of Revelation, this final manuscript written by an elderly John, closing out what we would call the canon. Now, I don't want to run down a rabbit hole, but I should point out that when we talk about the canon, the church fathers didn't pick and choose which books to include in the Bible or exclude. That's not how it happened. Like, that's not what the canon was about. The idea of canonization was that the church fathers codified which books were already accepted as the authoritative word of God. They were confirming what was already universally known. And they did that to exclude certain things that were heretical. Now, the sober warning that Jesus is is providing in this passage, it applies to anyone that would add to or take away from God's word following the completion of the book of Revelation. So this warning applies to the Roman Catholic Apocrypha, the Book of Mormon, the Quran. It would apply to more fringe heretical writings like the Book of Enoch or the Gospel of Judas, which were never accepted as being authoritative. In fact, Jesus here, the warning not to do that, Don't add to and don't take away. Like, leave it alone. (laughs) He can't be stronger in the original language. Like, don't mess with it. Leave it be. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says. So Jesus, now for the third time, he says, Surely, I am coming quickly. That has an application for all of us, but if your name is Shirley, please listen. 
John jumping back into the narrative, he says, amen, or that's true. I agree, man. Even so, John says, come, Lord Jesus. And then he adds, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And the church would say, amen. You know, following man's decision to rebel against God and eat the forbidden fruit, Genesis 3 verse 10 records for us Adam's first words uttered in a fallen sinful state. First words from sinful man was, so he said to the Lord God, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. First words of sinful man. You know, inherit to our sin, the sin nature, has always been this tendency to hide oneself from the presence of a holy God. This was not unique to just Adam. And yet, I think it's really fascinating to observe that the final words of sinful man, of which John was, he was a sinner, recorded in the Bible, is this appeal made by the apostle closing out the book, saying, even so, come Lord Jesus. I hid myself, come Lord Jesus. There's an interesting contrast to that, right? The Bible begins with sinful man hiding from the presence of God. But the book closes with man pleading for God to come quickly. That's amazing. Like, what changed? Well, John answers that question with the final words of his book. You see, man, the only reason that man has gone from hiding himself from God to now longing to be in God's presence is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the grace of God demonstrated in Jesus that has changed everything, hasn't it? You know, it's such a gnarly book that presents for us so many aspects of Jesus' person and character. Things we would be oblivious to if left just to the gospel narratives. John closes us, though, bringing us back to the one thing about Jesus that makes him so different. It's his grace. I hope you know this morning. And if you don't, let me tell you. God not only loves you in spite of you, but he sent his only son Jesus to die for your sins for no other reason than he's that good. You did nothing You did nothing. He just loves you. And with that in mind, after receiving God's grace, there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you any more than he already does. Please know that. And there's nothing you can can do to cause God to love you any less. It's the immutability of God, his unchanging nature. He loves you. You can't make him love you more. You can't cause him to love you less. That should be freeing. We just should enjoy his love, shouldn't we? I love it in Romans 5, verse 8, Paul says that God demonstrated his his own love towards us. So God, he wanted you to know how much he loved you and that while you were still a sinner, so you didn't do anything. When you were a sinner, God wanted you to know he loved you, so he sent his son, Jesus, to die for your sins. It's amazing. The good news. The good news is that your salvation, my friend, is not dependent upon your performance, but Jesus's.
It's not based upon your sacrifice, but the one he made. It's not based upon a lamb or an offering, but the lamb of God offered by God. It's not about you, it's about him. You see, a life-changing relationship with King Jesus is something that's given, again, to be received. All you have to do for your life to change forever is accept. Well, this revelation of the king presents Jesus in some pretty radical and challenging ways. John again closes by reminding us today that we can receive the grace of Jesus. It all comes back to his grace. Like I pray that as we here wrap up our travels through this amazing book, I pray that you find yourselves having a, a greater understanding of who Jesus is and a deeper love for him as a result. And coming out of this study, it's true, you know the future. And it's true, that should have an impact on how you view today. But never forget, you have been given a glimpse into the future, into future things, so that you might see more clearly the one who holds the future in his hands. We see the future, so we see Jesus. I pray, and I close this, we've spent 30 weeks in this book, and I hope, I pray, that you've enjoyed a fresh revelation of the King.